Would you open God's precious holy word to Ephesians 6? We'll be in verses 5 through 9. Continuing the study in Ephesians today, we can in some ways tie the principle, the divine standard of God, that standard being authority and submission, even to the events of Palm Sunday, as we get into the scripture. Here's what I mean. It is the principle established by God that there would in his system be the principle of authority and submission. We can start with it in, uh, in the universe. With the motion that exists in the heavenly bodies in our solar system. Let's just limit it, limit it to our solar system for discussion. There's the sun. And in a sense, it has authority over the planets and the planets are in submission. And so the life of a planet is dependent upon its submission, though it has no conscience. I understand that. It's a submission to the power and the authority of the sun. Now let's move it into human terms. The system in which we exist works best. That's not the right way to say it. It works. It doesn't work otherwise. It works when those who are in it are in recognition of God's divine standard of authority and submission. Take, for example, Christ coming into uh, Jerusalem. It's Palm Sunday. And they were making exclamations as though giving lip service. They accepted him as authority. Until by the end of the week, they had rejected his authority. And the rejection of his authority led, of course, to the cross. We can go back to the Old Testament. For example, the northern kingdom of Israel in its final days collapsed. It had lost its position as the pinnacle of world power just some years before its collapse. Jeroboam II had built a mighty nation, unequaled and unparalleled economically, militarily, and the people were well off. They were prosperous. But in their prosperity, they, be they began to be self-centered, and in their prosperity, they became selfish 
and self-centered and systematically and progressively lost their respect for authority. Hosea writes about it. And he makes it a case, he makes it a point in the case that God has against Israel. Hosea presents it as a divorce case. God takes Israel to divorce court because of the uh, because of the uh, whoredom of, of Israel, the northern kingdom, unfaithful to God, idolatry, taking on, chasing after other gods. And so Hosea goes through this litany of accusations that are to be brought, any one of which was enough for grounds of divorce for, for Yahweh, God of Israel. And at the end of it, he said, and they have cast off all restraints and blood touches blood. So from the strong leadership of Jeroboam II, who was the king for more than 40 years, to just a few years after his death, a total collapse of the system, and finally defeat and enslavement by the Assyrians, we see that the root cause is that the people of God in the northern kingdom had cast off the principle, the divine standard of authority and submission. When that happens, chaos ensues into any family, into any organization, into any nation or government. The system that God has created, though fallen it is, is established on God's divine standard of authority and submission. And the Bible doesn't turn away from that. It's true in government. We are taught that in the book of Romans. But now in a domestic situation, and remember, Ephesians, the first three chapters... teach us our position in Christ. Once we understand ourselves positionally, now we are to live practically for Christ. And so that's the last three chapters, the instruction of living practically in Christ. So the principle, the divine standard of authority and submission is there. In a domestic situation, we've already seen, uh, it begins with... Uh, Authority and submission in a marriage, husbands and wives. We continued after that. We saw that there is the principle of authority and submission with regard to parents and children. Today, we go into the workplace. These are instructions, these are imperatives. Remember I told you all of these instructions are in the imperative. In other words, it's a command. It's not a suggestion. And studying these, we have to understand that the teaching is for those who are positionally in Christ. In other words, we have a spirit-filled world and the instructions that we are given are instructions uh, 
that should be rather easy and simple for us to follow because of a spirit-filled life. We have the Holy Spirit that was taught early in Ephesians. The Holy Spirit is deposited in our lives. We can't follow these instructions if we are lost and dead in trespass and sin. Because being lost in trespass and sin makes a person in, in that person's deadness makes that person totally self-centered. The principle of authority and submission to that authority is not something that is easy for an unsaved person to fall under. So these are, these are instructions for Christians because everything about our lives is a testimony of Christ. People will know that we are Christians. How many times have you heard people make a comment, well, oh, so-and-so is a Christian, and if he's a Christian, the woods is full of them, you know. Uh, you, you've, you've heard stuff like that. It's because something negative and unchristlike has at some time been displayed in that person's life, apparently. So we have to be keenly aware all the time. We were already told to walk carefully, circumspectly, to walk measuring every step that we take, carefully observing the environment and the path that we're on and what surrounds us, because every step in our Christian lives is important. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us, and we are to be reflecting Christ in every aspect of life. Remember, when we started in the domestic instructions here with husbands and wives, the instructions were just like this. Do this in Christ. You are in Christ. You're doing this for Christ. You're doing it to Christ. You're doing it in, you're doing it in your domestic relationship as though you were doing it to Christ or for Christ. That continued in, in parents and children, which we saw last time. And it continues here in the workplace. So let's look at this. Authority and submission in Christ. It's easily divided here, this passage. Instructions for those who are in submission and instruction for those who are in authority. Slaves. Now let's talk about that first. The word slave. That's not a, generally speaking in the United States of America, and I guess across the world, I don't, I don't know that much about the social aspects of the sociology of all nations. But that's, that's, that's an abhorrent word when we think of it in the English slave, slavery. It's not something that is, is a pretty thought. When we think of it, especially against the backdrop of our history and the history of the world, we think of, we think of, of taking people out of their homelands and cramming them on a nasty boat and beating them and putting them in chains and bringing them back and throwing them up on a, on a stage and selling them and 
and whipping them and beating them if they don't do right and all that. That's the kind of thought we get when we think of slavery. That is not the biblical portrait of slavery. You have to think of the system of the economy in which the, against which the writing is given. There are some realities in the Bible that are easy, that, that were, that were described and talked about and the instructions given, but it's easily, it's easily translated into today's world. Here is what I mean. The biblical, the biblical world, if you go back to the Old Testament, there were reasons that people became, fell into servitude. It wasn't the kind of slavery that you think about within Israel because God regulated it in the law of Moses. It wasn't the kind of servitude or slavery that was seen among the Gentile nations. It was different. God regulated it and he regulated it in many ways, but I'll, I'll try to think of some of them. For example, how does a person become a slave? A person can live in a society within an economy where he doesn't have the ability to take care of his family on his own. He has to be part of a larger community. In an Old Testament sense, a household. So he comes and more or less in order to be cared for and protected in the household, he becomes a servant, biblical term, slave, whatever you want to call it. He becomes a servant and he can participate in the benefits of the household and he, he contributes to the household because he has a skill or more than one skill. Or he's taught a skill and he's placed in the, in the area of the household where he is needed. Sometimes they would do two things. If you go back and you, and you look at the, uh, the servants of Abram, and Lot had been kidnapped by, by the, by the uh, Keterleomer and the, the kings of the, of the four cities. They, they captured Lot and they kidnapped his family. And there were, there were four nations of armies and, and Abram called together his trained men. They were servants in his household. But one of the things, there were 318 of them. One of the things they'd been trained to do was to protect the household. They were a little militia group and they were skilled. Chanika, the word means the train. It means they were trained. So they would devote part of their time, I guess, into maintaining their skills as fighters, household warriors. And those 318 guys, they used their skills and psychological warfare and they defeated the four armies and released the captives. So, you study how they are shepherds, they're different, they're, they have different jobs, and some of them would serve more than one purpose. The men and the women, and they would come under the protection of the household. If they're out there by themselves, they can't do anything but get killed or fall at the mercy of the world. The best thing that could happen to them was to come into servitude of, of a benevolent Lord, a Lord of the household, Adon, the Lord of the household. Abram was a benevolent lord of his household, and it was a vast household. He had, I mean, the, 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 these flocks and herds that he had 
were as far as you could see. And of course, they were, they were nomadic in the sense that they traveled from place to place because they had to constantly find water and, and pasture land for grazing and so forth. So they would contribute. They would receive benefits. They would have a home. They could raise their families. They could be happy. They would, the, the more that the household uh, gained, the happier and the more benefits the, the, the servant would have. Under the Mosaic law, the lords of households were warned not to abuse their servants. It's in the book of Exodus. It's in the, it's in the law. If they abused their servants, the servants could leave and there would be no penalty. If they were man stealers, let's say that there's a, a bad guy and he's an Israelite and he's the head of a household. He's rich, but he needs more slaves and he sends out a, a pack of his men and they raid a village and steal people and bring them back. The Mosaic law, that was a capital crime. The head of the household would be killed if he did that. So you see, when we think of slavery today, we think of man stealing. That's not the way it was in the Bible. I'm not apologizing for it. I'm just saying this is the way the economy worked in another day. The principle, however, of authority and submission still the same. Still have those who are in leadership and have those who are to follow the leadership. Those who outline the work, who, in may, who make the investment, and then those who come under that investment as part of the investment and do the work. This, this, same, this same kind of benevolence follows, of course, into the early church. And the reality was that not everybody could afford his own home. It was a different world. However, they could become part of a community or a village where they could sell their labor. They could become servants and be cared for and be safe. And uh, in another sense, sometimes there were those in the Old Testament and actually in the New Testament as well in the Roman world and the Greek world where people could not pay their debts. And let's say the person could have been a physician, maybe like Luke. And he would be a, he would be a valuable addition to the household, but he couldn't pay his debts. The choice was go to prison and his family be sold as slaves or sell himself into a household that would enter into a contract such that they would work this person to the extent that the household would pay his debt for his service over a period of time. Servitude. I think they used to call that indentured servitude or something. So that was another way that a person could become a servant or a slave to a household. Now, every seven years in the Old Testament, the year of Jubilee was such that slaves could be set free. 
But a slave might realize that he hasn't, he, he doesn't have the, the personal resources. There's no way that he could create his own household. Everything is going well for him and his family in the household where he is. And he could come before the Lord of the household and he could say, you have treated me with love and kindness. I want to be a part of this household. I do not want to be set free. I will volunteer myself from now on and my family's service to be a part of your household. And so they would take his, they would take him and put him up next to the doorpost and take his earlobe and take an ice pick or something like that and hammer a hole in his earlobe and he would wear a little earring which meant that I am voluntarily a part of this household from now on. My master is, is benevolent and uh, he takes care of me. In, uh, in, in the New Testament sense, this is the economy that existed. A person had to work for a household that owned, I don't know, vineyards or, or fields, flocks, maybe all of it. Wealthy people, maybe they inherited it, I don't know. But the reality was that there would be those who owned the household and were in charge. And there were those who were to work in submission of the authority. This principle of authority and submission is a, is a perfect setting domestically for Christians further to receive proper instruction, whether masters or slaves, whether in authority or in submission. So we keep that in mind and we move from there. Now we're going to start with those who are in submission first, the servant, the slave. Start with number one, obey the masters according to the flesh. You see the word obey. We've seen that word before, hypocrite. That word was the same word about children and parents. Akuo is in the middle of that word, in that Greek word, which is to sound. Hypo means under, and it means that you're under, you are under the speaking of those who are over you. That's the word makes this, the word wouldn't exist if you didn't have the assumption that someone was over you giving you instructions and you were under that person expected to obey those instructions. Obey the masters according to the flesh. Now we have a master in heaven. Of course, we do everything we can do, hopefully, to obey his word. Sometimes we'll surprise ourselves in Bible study and say, ooh, I didn't know that was in there. And then we'll have to repent, confess that we didn't realize this and, and forsake that thing in our lives. And sometimes it's difficult to do. Here, the servant is under the authority and instruction of the one who is called the master. The word is curios uh, uh, and is from curios, which is the word Lord. Adon is the Hebrew word. It's the Lord of a household. 
Obey the masters according to the flesh. Now that's very clear. You have an employer. You have someone under whose authority you stand. You are to obey your authority according to the flesh. Not just that, but you're to have the right attitude when you do it. With fear and trembling, you could say with reverence and respect, you respectfully obey the instructions of the authority who is over you and you do it with an understanding that you're to do it reverentially and respectfully because you're going to be held accountable. You have to do it with fear. You'll be held accountable. And then thirdly, you're to do it in sincerity of your heart. That word sincerity uh, up here, haplotity, uh, it means singleness. That I have this focus. I'm, it, it could also be translated simplicity. It's a simple thing. It's not that hard. It's not that difficult. You have instructions. Reverently. Respectfully. Understanding that if you don't, there is a price to be paid. With fear and trembling. With singleness of heart. Obey those instructions as to Christ. Your Christian life, your Christian testimony is not separated from the way you live and the path that you walk in this world. And that, that extends even into the workplace. Do your job. Do it reverently, respectfully. Do it the best that you can do. Do, do that just like what you do for Christ, you're doing for Christ. Christ has gifted you in some way and you work in the church and, and you have the unction to do the best that you can do. The same attitude is to be applied in a worker when he is in submission to his authority. With singleness of mind, in simplicity, in sincerity, simply with simplicity, just do your job and do it right. Do it completely. Don't cheat your employer. And do it because you are in Christ. And this is part of your worldly, earthly testimony. People are watching. Here is a guy who quietly, respectfully works for a boss that everybody else hates and makes fun of and talks about behind his back, but this guy keeps his mouth shut and he does his work until his day's work is completed and he goes home. People have noticed the difference. This is part of the testimony that we have for Christ. Number four, not with eye service as men pleasers. I used to work for my daddy in the clothing business. He was a boss. I was his youngest, precious child. Didn't matter. Not in the store. Man, if I was sitting up there reading a magazine, he'd take that thing out from under me. He'd say, go over here and straighten up those shirts. I was being paid by that hour. You know, I was being, I was being paid a wage. Not to read a magazine, but to work. 
Make me mad as fire. But I'd do it. I never, I'll always remember. Daddy had several employees, a pretty big, pretty big store. Everybody was, he didn't like anything out of place. You had to keep the shirts, the suit, the pants. You had to separate. They, they, in those days, they, hang on a, they hung on a wire rack. And you had to do this because they couldn't touch each other. And you had to make a finger width between each pant, the pair of pants that was hanging. He had to do the same with the suits that were hanging on the wall. So, like a bunch of little beeves in a beehive, people were constantly going around, you know. <laughs> or the shirts. Well, I'll tell you, you get, you get some wife coming in there to get her husband an Easter shirt. <laughs> she just takes you 28 shirts out and stuffs them back. Finally gets one shirt. My daddy used to have a saying when he would spend a half an hour trying to sell a $800 suit and they'd buy an $8 shirt. And that was all he used to say, little orders graciously appreciated and bigger ones in proportion. You would have to go back over there now. That was your customer. And straighten up all those shirts. Here's the way you did it. The outside, the collar of the shirt here, so the collar here, and then the collar would go in next so that it all had to be even, flat. This way, this way, this way, this way, this way, this way. It seemed like a waste of time. I could be down at the gun shop across the street over here, really doing something with my time. But you'd have to straighten it up. So the time came, my daddy used to go to lunch at about 11 o'clock every day. He would come to me. I was, the, I was the general manager. That's what he called me. I had a bachelor's degree in management. And he would give me four days of work to do in an hour. Now, I want you to come here, son. I want you to... Well, he knew I would have to delegate some of that, but he made me responsible for it. When Daddy walked out the door, everybody just went, <laughs> and they might float over in little groups of two or three and talk. And I would have to say, "Would you come here? I need you to straighten up these boxes." Or "Would you come here? I need you to straighten." And Daddy knew that it would take more than one person to do what he had placed on my shoulders to do. But the easy thing to do was just to relax because the boss had just walked out the door and he was going to be gone for about an hour. And I mean, he was the boss. His eyebrows were three times the size of mine. <laughs> he had no sense of humor, not in the store. And, and he came, it was like he came in mad from lunch every time he came See what had happened. Am I, am I telling it like it is? My kids worked for him some. He's rough. Well, he'd, how many times he leave you in tears? I mean, even my wife, Pat, I don't know. Yeah, at least one. I mean, he just, you didn't do that. What are you, I'm not paying you to do this. <laughs> Greatest guy in the world, though, I'll tell you something. When the lights shut out and the door locked and the deposit was made and the bag was put in the night depository, 
he'd take us to the finest dinner and he'd do all kind of stuff for us. But anyway, here's the deal. You're not just supposed to work as a man pleaser with eye service just to, just to impress the boss at the moment when the boss is there. No. But you're to do it, number five, as a servant of Christ. Christ never lets up. Thank God in heaven. You know what Jesus is doing right now? He's keeping me saved. He is my high priest. I can't keep myself saved. I can't save myself. I can't keep myself saved. I have a high priest in heaven and he's keeping me saved. Now, what if Jesus only did that while the, while the, of course, the heavenly father never sleeps either. But just suppose the heavenly father decided to take a stroll around New Jerusalem. What if Jesus just said, I'm going to give up just right now. What would happen to me if he relaxed in his work of keeping me saved? I would be destroyed. That's what would happen. So you see, here's what he says. You're a servant of Christ. You know what Christ is doing for you. Do this for the one who is in authority. Do it right. Don't stop until it's done. Number six, doing the will of God from the heart. It is the will of God for me to properly place myself in submission over the authority. This is a divine standard. This is the system on which God's creation works. If the, if the principle of authority and submission is lost, there is chaos. May I say to you, and, and this is just parenthetically off to the side, we are losing that principle in our nation today. The nation will not stand. The same thing will happen to us that happened to Assyria. When all restraints are broken off, you can't tell me what to do. It's all about me. And every man does that which is right in his own eyes. Like in the dark ages of the book of Judges. Or fixes his eyes on the tree of knowledge more than obedience to Christ. The great northern kingdom of Israel had a great fall. It collapsed and thundered in its collapse such that the Assyrians carried the ten northern tribes off into slavery. The ten lost tribes, they're called. God knows where they are. This is the will of God that an organized society will understand his divine standard of authority and submission. It's that way in governments. It's that way in marriage. It's that way in families. It's that way in the workplace. Rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord and not to men. You see, we do it for the Lord this is a testimony. This is a Christian who is working for you. 
knowing that each one, if whatever good he might have done, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Whether you're the one in authority or the one in submission, the Lord is watching you and the Lord is our great paymaster. Not the one who signs the check, but the one in heaven who watches everything. It's going to come back to us. We may think that the boss is ignoring the great hard work. We don't think. You just do your work. And God will see it. And God will pay you for it. That's what, the, that's what it says here. He'll do the same for the master or the slave. Finally, those who are in authority. Masters, do the same things toward them. The same things. Now, there's an antecedent in verse 6, and that antecedent is do the will of God. Let's see if I can find it. Doing the will of God from the heart. That's the antecedent of what follows here in uh, this verse right here, I think. Did I wear it out? There you go. Masters do the same things toward them, the will of God. Number two, don't be abusive. Threatening. Give that up. Number three, knowing that also your master and their master is in heaven. You both have the same master in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. So we have an understanding of how Christians should put forth their efforts in the work that they do. But now let me spin this back around to Palm Sunday and the week that follows. Some Some infamous day, some, some day, Hades will spew forth those who are in it. And they will be judged at the great white throne. And they'll be cast into the lake of fire. There to suffer forever. The lake of fire will be filled with nothing but rebels. Nothing but those who refused to submit to the great authority of God. This is the foundation of God's system of creation. Authority and submission. Thank God that along the way, someday, one day in life, I was convicted and crushed by the Spirit of God to come into submission to my great authority in heaven. And He saved me. He'll do the same for you. If He calls you, and places you under that great conviction. Your need 
to be submissive to the greatest authority of all, the Creator, the Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came into this world to save sinners. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe in Jesus. Call on Him to save you. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We're going to be dismissed in just a a moment, but as you exit, if God has placed on your heart a great need, the need to be saved, or the need, having been saved, to follow the Lord in baptism, or having been saved and been obedient to the Lord, to be a part of a local church. There, There are even rules of authority and submission in the Bible regarding the church. And it's right for us to come together as responsible believers where we can serve Christ together, fellowship with one another, be responsible to one another, and learn and teach God's Word together. If that's your need as well, we have deacons and wives in the rooms just across the hall as you exit. Just walk in there and talk with them about any of those needs today if God places that on your heart. Would you prayerfully stand all over this room and I'll pray the benediction. Father, thank you, Lord, for your instructions that are meant for us to live abundant lives and to present an effective testimony in this world as well. Oh, God, thank you for your word and For the Holy Spirit who lives in us, for Jesus Christ who died to save us, who lives to keep us, and who's coming again for us. And it's in His name we pray today. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.